Welcome to the 268th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of obituaries and writing about a year of loss with Dan Waken of the New York Times. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays as well at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 28, 2021, there are 3,135,750 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has reached 573,381. According to Reuters, in the last 24 hours brought 360,960 new cases in India of COVID-19. That's the world's largest single day total, taking India's tally of infections to nearly 18 million. And it was the deadliest day so far with 3,293 fatalities carrying the Indian total of deaths from COVID-19 to 201,187. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline is, Gail Slatter, who helped make the Times newsroom run, dies at 68. This was written by Sam Roberts and published in the New York Times, March 25th, 2021. Gail Slatter never received a byline or a photo credit in the New York Times. During the 40 years she worked there, her name appeared in the newspaper only once in 1997, when she helped flesh out a profile of a 15-year-old murder suspect who happened to have been on her daughter's swim team at a YMCA on Manhattan's west side. Ms. Slatter was a news assistant at the Times but her unassuming job title belied the significant impact she had on what appeared in the paper and on the daily lives of her colleagues, particularly on the culture and photo desks. She was a guide, gatekeeper, and guardian. I talked to her every morning when I called in for assignments for about 15 years, Jim Estrin, a staff photographer said. She made every day better. She also stood up for herself and for what was right. Slatter died at 68, on March 21st in a Bronx hospital. The cause was COVID-19, her daughter Lauren said. Gail Slatter was born on April 25th, 1952 in the Bronx and grew up on the Grand Concourse, a few blocks from Yankee Stadium, although she would become a basketball fanatic. Her father was Clarence Slatter Sr., a native of Georgia who was trained as a printer. Her mother was Daisy Seymour Slatter, a hairdresser. She graduated from Washington Irving High School in Manhattan and attended Fordham University in the Bronx, but didn't finish. In the early 1980s, she was accepted to a journalism program at the University of California, Los Angeles, 
but decided against moving and uprooting her family. In addition to her daughter, she is survived by her husband, Bruce Stansbury, a science teacher. A brother, Clarence Jr., had died. Ms. Slatter's first job was as an operator for the telephone company, but her enthusiasm about journalism took her to the Times in 1974. There, she worked initially as a file clerk in the morgue, the newspaper's vital repository of cataloged clippings and photographs that decades later was deemed anachronistic when articles could be preserved and retrieved digitally. Until she retired in 2014, she worked as a news clerk and news assistant, coordinating assignments for the photo and culture desks. For the culture staff, for example, she compiled a weekly master list of forthcoming performances from which music critics could make their decisions about what to review. When a former publicist for Carnegie Hall, then with the Cleveland Orchestra, came to visit the Times newsroom, the one person he wanted to meet was Miss Slatter. She followed every colleague's growing family with a loving warmth and honest interest that I never before witnessed from a colleague, Lonnie Schlein, a former Times photographer and photo editor, said. Gail always held her own and was never hesitant to express her well-thought-out positions on social issues, a strong woman who clearly knew right from wrong. Michael Cooper, the current deputy culture editor for News, recalled, she helped me feel welcome when I was a frightened new clerk on the photo desk, and she was a seasoned hand, and she made every desk she worked on better and friendlier. Ms. Slatter had recently resumed her education, enrolling at City College of New York and majoring in creative writing. She was working on a children's book and a novel. We were so proud of her for this, her daughter said. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest, Dan Waken. Dan has been a journalist at the New York Times since 2000. He currently is an editor on the obituary news desk, where he's been editing the series Those We've Lost on COVID Dead. Previously, he was deputy editorial director of New York Times Global, a strategic team focused on international audience, and a deputy editor of the Culture Desk. As a reporter, his beats include religion, classical music and dance, and general assignment. He's covered stories in more than a dozen countries in Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America. And he helped lead the team that produced the Emmy-nominated multimedia project Inside the Quartet. A graduate of Harvard University with a degree in the classics, Dan is an avid amateur clarinetist. He's also the author of The Man with the Sawed-Off Leg and Other Tales of a New York City Block, which appeared with Arcade in 2018. Dan Waken, thanks so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic is looking like there, what the vaccine situation is looking like there today. Uh, I'm calling from my house um, in Manhattan in New York City on the Upper West Side uh, near Columbia University. And uh, things are looking much better in New York, um, particularly in Manhattan and particularly in this neighborhood um, in terms of um, infection rates, death rates. Um, the city had about is averaging about 2,000 cases a day, uh, double-digit deaths. Um, vaccinations are are really on the upswing. Um, it's interesting though that even you know now that the government in the United States has said people can go outside without a mask if they're vaccinated, um, most of the people I see outdoors are still wearing masks. And many of them are older, and I'm pretty sure they've been vaccinated. So there's extreme care in, in the area where I am. 
And in terms of vaccination there, are they doing mass vaccination centers or people getting those at, at their physician's offices? How are people making uh, use of getting access to vaccine there? Well, now it's become a little easier. You can go to clinics, to walk-in clinics or to um, pharmacies. Um, before that, there were large centers that were, it was very confusing patchwork. Uh, there, was, there were centers that were managed by the city, by New York State. Um, then there was a website by the, the federal government of where you could find vaccines. And it was very unclear, uh, you know, how, how to approach this. And then one enterprising guy, um, uh, Mr. Ma, I think his first name is Huge, Huge Ma, set up a, a site, a, 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 a Twitter feed called TurboVax. And it was uh, this fantastic resource that he just did all by himself that was an automatic feed of every site where vaccination appointments became available. And you could just, you know, he, you could click on a link you provided and go and sign up online. And people would you know, go on at 12.01 a.m. and start clicking madly uh, and, and looking at that at his at his feed or looking at their Twitter feed on their phone, just waiting for something to open up. And that's how I actually found my appointments. Really? It was, um, yeah, it was a uh, there was like 46 appointments available at a high school in the Bronx in New York. So I immediately signed up and, you know, in four days and went up there and and stood online for about two hours. It was not all that well organized, but it worked in the end. I got vaccinated. Um, so better now. Yeah. Those stories are good to document because um, there's such a, a, a variety of ways that people um, have gotten information about where to get mm -hmm. vaccinated. Um, you know, and some of it has been just like this, following a Twitter feed. Oh, that's the first time I've heard that. Um, yeah. Or getting a call from a neighbor or, you know, an in-law or somebody says, hey, I heard they have this or I heard they have that. Not nearly as uh, as systematic as we might like to think uh, it should be, but it's it seems to be getting the job done. Thanks for sharing that information there from New York. Sure. Um, a lot of things I want to get to today, but I actually want to start by just backing up to early 2020 and just ask you if you remember how COVID-19 sort of first entered your consciousness? When did you first become aware of it? You know, I don't really remember that well. I think I think I remember just in my routine reading of the paper, reading some story out of China about a new virus. Um, I think the thing that really struck home was when I was talking to a colleague uh, in the cafeteria uh, at the Times, who covers infectious diseases, and he said, "You know, there's this really serious virus coming along that's really deadly, and um, you should be really aware about it. Uh, you know, about its the fact that since you're in obituaries, you may be getting a lot of work." And then he sent an email a couple of days later saying, "Yep, you know, you better be ready." And I, that's when it really hit home. Um, and uh, I think the other thing I first remember is. When there was a series of events all at once, sometime in early March or mid March, you know, universities were sending their students home. Um, uh, the stock market was tanking. Uh, hospitals in Italy were looking like nightmares. And these are all things that I kind of can identify with because my son had just graduated from college mm -hmm. the spring before. You know, I used to work in Italy as a correspondent, so I was familiar with that. I remember the crash of 1987, Black Tuesday, when I was working for the Associated Press, what a big deal it was. So that, that stuff all kind of resonated. It was all happening at once. 
Um, so I think that's probably what first hit me. There's a, a story that you wrote in April, and I've tweeted it out. People can find it easily. Um, it appeared in the Times in, in which you, April of last year, in, in which you kind of recounted the early days of this quite massive obituary project that you've been in, engaged with. I wonder if you wouldn't mind recounting a little bit of that for us now, just how the idea started to come together for this large project. Sure. Um, so it was... It, the, the the events that I, I had just described were, were happening, and uh, I, we were all in the office still. And um, uh, Sam Roberts, whose piece you read, is a, is is in the obituary department. He's a writer there, uh, and he sent an email to everybody saying, "Hey, should we think about doing a portraits of grief?" You know, as, as it was evident that many people are going to be dying. Now, I don't know if your your listeners will recall, but Portraits of Grief was a project by the Metro Desk at the Times right after 9-11, after the attack on the World Trade Center. And the idea of Portraits of Grief was, was to write a, um, a little a vignette, a short piece about every person who died at, at Ground Zero. Um, and it was really an incredible project and it involved people from all across the paper, but mostly from Metro. And I was I was also involved in writing these pieces and they were you know, four to six to eight paragraph vignettes about every person who died. They weren't full obituaries. They weren't the whole story of the person's life. They were just maybe pick out something special about them, some fond memory. Um, and it became a, a big project and it became a book, et cetera. So Sam was it had been in Metro too, so he remembered Portraits of Grief. Um, and I think I also wrote in that piece that that was when I got the email from my colleague, Be Prepared for Waves of Death. And it occurred to me, yes, it's not a bad idea, but that's not the way we should do it. Because 9-11 um, happened in an instant, in one place, uh, at, you know, at one time, um, and involved a finite number of dead people in the end. I mean, first, we didn't know how many had died. It took a long time to get the full death, death toll. But it was finite. Thing about COVID is it's happening around the world. It's continual. Every day there were thousands of deaths. Um, it involved every kind of person you could possibly think of. There was no de <coughs> defining factor about them. So how do we how do we do that? How do you do a portrait of grief when those are the circumstances? Mm -hmm. So you know we talked amongst ourselves, our colleagues, editors, the reporters, and it they kind of it seemed to me the way to go was to be very selective, pick people with the real criteria in mind, um, be as broad as possible, try to follow the news. So as we were finding out that an enormous number of people were dying in nursing homes, let's profile some elderly people who died in nursing homes. And as we found out that um, healthcare workers you know, in the front lines, we're really dying in, in large numbers. Let's do some doctors and nurses. So, so that was one organizing principle. Another organizing principle was since we were obituary writers and editors, let's treat them as real obituaries. Let's give them the full treatment, if not in length, but at least in intent, mm -hmm. where we, we do what we do in obituaries is where we, we capture and sum up the, the main aspect of their life. Um, uh, we then uh, deeply report 
through interviewing family and friends who they were and what they did. We provide all the basic biographical information that we do for regular obituaries, like schooling and spouses and children and survivors, et cetera. And let me just put in parentheses, when I, when I say regular obits, I mean the obituaries that are our bread and butter, the, the, the obituaries that we traditionally do for famous people, important people, celebrities, movers and shakers, people who are maybe unknown, but are enormously influential in their fields, or even people that are completely unknown, but had just amazing life stories. So that's, that's our bread and butter, right? So I was thinking we should we should give to these COVID victims some of that seriousness and some of that fullness, um, uh, because you know obituaries are it's just it's an incredible genre. I mean it's it 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 gives you um, a life story, it it gives you uh, the, the 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 arc of a person's life in ways that we can all identify with because you know we all are born we all have parents. You know, many of us are educated, go to school. Many of us have first jobs and, and we can kind of see humanity through these stories. Um, that, that's one thing I find compelling about obits. The other thing is every obituary is the story of a time and place. It's, it's a little slice of history that you're telling through a person's life. Mm-hmm. And, and these elements I thought were, you know, this is what, to me makes for great obituaries. And I thought, let's give these qualities to our, our, uh, our portraits of, of those who've died of, of COVID-19. I'm really glad that you mentioned Portraits of Grief, which was and remains an important resource uh, of that time. But I think it was an important way to cope with that disaster. And, and it's interesting, you know, you talk about the time scale and your insight that it, it couldn't be exactly like Portraits of Grief because we don't know any sort of ending point for COVID. I do remember the Portraits of Grief appearing in the newspaper over a few months. And they were, to me, and I know to many others, kind of a way, something to latch on to while there were still some uncertainties at that time, when they were still trying, they were still searching for the dead for some time and then deconstructing the pile that was in lower Manhattan. I mean, I still remember. I still remember what Crossley Williams Jr., for example, is one that it just springs to mind. And there's a detail in there that it said um, his parents had written it or contributed a quote. And they said, he enjoyed our company and we enjoyed his. And it just stuck with me. Little things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of t- ties to what you were just talking about as an obituary writer, looking for something that you can, um, a detail or or a few that you can bring into the obituary, which opens up a kind of world in which you can imagine what this person was like, seems incredibly hard kind of writing to do. I mean, could you talk more generally about the kinds of, of work that goes into crafting an obituary? You were saying a bit about it a minute ago, but it, it's right. you know such a, a limited number of words to do so much work. Well, yeah, I just, just wanted to touch for a second what you said. It's a very important point about portraits of grief that is that they were they were helpful to everyone. They were for a way of dealing with the sadness we all felt, um, and it was it was sort of therapeutic for the readers uh, as well as for the family members. And that that's an that's an important and interesting uh, thing about that. Um, I'm not sure if that's the effect of, of of those we've lost. I think you know some people have written in and said they feel that way. Um, 
But um, so what goes into writing a good obit so, or, or a good loss profile? I mean, because the thing about the loss profiles is that they're very short, you know, generally. You know, we write obits that go up to uh, 1,000, 1,200, 1,600 words. And for really big people, they can go for thousands of words. Um, portraits of uh, uh, those we've lost, I've tried to keep to around 500 words, you know, 400 to 600. Sometimes they go longer. So it's there's not a lot of space. You have to pack in a lot of information. Um, and I, I mean, for everyone, I think the basics are, are key, you know, their birth date, uh, who their parents were, what their parents did, where were they born? Um, if they went to school, where did they go to school? Uh, and who did they leave behind? You know, and, and we have we, our guidelines for obituaries are we consider as immediate survivors, spouses, siblings, children and parents. And we name them. Uh, that's our sort of standard practice, if we can. And then we also mention the number of grandchildren uh, and great grandchildren. So that that all has to go into a, a loss profile. And then, as you say, it's it's the telling details. The the um, uh, you know something that was one of the, some interests that they had and a passion they had for something in life. Uh, that they devoted time to, or a gesture they did towards a friend. Um, you know, we did a, we did one recently about a tattoo artist, and a friend said his his hero was the Green Hornet because he loved comic books. And at the at his memorial service, people held up green lights in honor of that. So mm -hmm. something like that uh, kind of makes a person concrete. It makes you feel like you can know them. Um, so, so that's what we try to do. And that requires a lot of reporting. That requires a lot of phone calls to, to family and to friends. And sometimes that's difficult, especially if it's a person who's just an ordinary person who's not you know, a famous uh, figure, uh, to try to track down their fans, family and friends is not easy. We also rely on the public record for many people, what you know, documentaries that have been made. Um, we just did a, a lost about um, a harmonica player named Paul Osher. Who was a blues? Who was a great blues musician who played with Muddy Waters? Was one of the great blues mm -hmm. stars of all time. Um, and uh, he uh, he he didn't leave behind many survivors. And it was sort of hard to track down his friends. But a filmmaker made a, a 16 minute film about Osher, Osher in which he's interviewed um, at at length. And it was just such an invaluable source. It was so wonderful and it was so great to hear his voice. Uh, and to and to use the information that he, he imparted, and of course we linked to that video in our in our uh, obituary, so people can can watch it. They can click on it. I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about um, the reader's perspective on this, and I, I read in an interview you said um, about this project: come away. You want readers to come away with a sense of the slices of our society that are particularly hard hit, and a sense of the individual lives, and that's what we've just been discussing but you know that's you've got that but we've also got all of these infographics and data visualizations and they're very impressive don't get me wrong the degree to which you can go to you know the new york times and many other newspapers around the world and receive pretty complicated epidemiological data it's there at your fingertips it's like a dashboard almost but the obituary operates in a different time zone it's a different emotional register. It demands the reader to slow down a little bit, uh, think a little bit, connect. And I've, I've thought a lot about those sort of um, two speeds of 
uh, reading that people are invited to do these days. And it, I wonder how readers are engaging with these obituaries. Have they commented that they see them as a, a relief from all of those sort of relentless numbers? Or you know, how do you imagine them um, interacting with them, given the other ways that this pandemic is represented, which is often big numbers, scary numbers, plotted on a graph or plotted on a geography or plotted on a map? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I I haven't seen much direct comparison between the individual obituaries and our reporting about the big numbers. People do react to specific stories by saying, thank you for telling me about so-and-so. This is an amazing person. Um, I, I actually, one of the one of the more moving tweets that we came, I, I, I pulled out for this um, conversation and um, I was going to, um, uh, I was gonna just read from this tweet, which is really kind of wonderful. Um, and, you know, it, it was uh, uh, someone who sent in, um, a, I guess it was a letter to the editor. And this, this person wrote, I read them all and without exception cried. My feeling is that maybe if we all read these beautiful personal remembrances and cried, we might be more apt to help each other through this awful time. Thank you for remembering this one, the wonderful people we've lost. So I, I, to me, that encapsulated a lot of the comments that we've gotten either in letters or tweets or you know, comments at the bottom of the stories. Um, it's, you know, it's, um, the people are like all become exceptional because every person is exceptional, right? Every life is a unique, special life. And when they're written about, you know, especially in the New York Times, they become, they seem really truly to be exceptional. Um, and they are. Um, and then this, this writer also sort of got to what you were saying before that reading them all helps us get through this pandemic and what's going on. So I think that kind of, gets at the appeal of the individual slow read, slowly read obits, as opposed to the sweeping uh, charts, graphics, and big stories about numbers, which are, you know, incredibly important and vital and is, you know, it, it consists of some absolutely incredible journalism by the New York Times. I mean, our data collection project is, is just extraordinary, um, the way we've gathered this, the data and presented it. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls and continuing my week of discussions about obituary, talking with Dan Waken today of the New York Times. Dan, I talked with uh, Paige Cornwell from the Seattle Times yesterday, and um, I asked her a similar kind of discussion to what we're having now, and I, I asked her if there had been criticism of these, um, in, because of course in the broader society, as we know throughout last year, and I guess still, maybe to a lesser extent, now, given the change in the presidency, um, a pushback in the culture against focusing too much on the pandemic, focusing too much on these lives, or even disputing 
um, the numbers and disputing whether or not people had actually died of COVID. Maybe it was something else. And that discourse was out there last year. It's an unfortunate one from my perspective. But here you are shepherding this project through, which is asking people to really spend some time with these lives and reflect on them. Did you receive criticism directly or indirectly or something you perceived as some kind of hostility to this kind of work? Yes, we got some some initial um, Twitter commentary, which was sort of, you know, nasty. Um, people saying, why are you, people die every day. Why are you writing obituaries just because they've died of this thing they call COVID? Um, somebody sent a tweet saying um, that, that call, saying that we love this hysteria porn. Um, I'm not sure what hysteria porn is, but uh, um, so yes, there was a fair amount of that at the beginning. Not a lot, you know, a few a few tweets like that. But um, um, you know, the, the Times is a big target in general, so I think we attract uh, criticism, and that's fine. You know, um, and, and I, maybe even more than criticism, we attract vitriol. Um, but we just ignore it and move on. I'm curious, what did Paige say about? about the reaction that, that she was getting. Same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Um, that some people had expressed, you know, people die every day. Um, why is this, you know, so special? Why are you making such a big deal about this? But it's, I think it's, it's very, re it's relevant because um, the telling the truth about the numbers, telling the truth about the, the lives last year actually became a sort of a political act. It's, it's not something, and I don't remember, we, we were talking earlier about the portraits of grief. If it happened, I don't recall. There was certainly conspiracy thinking about 9-11, but I, I don't remember um, political uh, agita about telling the truth about that disaster and the way that we've seen this last year. And so I guess my question to you is, I mean, to what extent do you see this work as having entered political discussion as well. Well, I don't think, I don't I haven't detected that the, you know, those we've lost series really has much of a political impact. I mean, it's possible it does, uh, and I just haven't noticed it, or it's possible that it feeds into the political impact that any coverage of COVID-19 as a pandemic would have. But, you know, it's one small strand of, of, a, of a giant sea, you know, giant, bad mixing of metaphors, but, you know, one, one small rivulet in a, in a, in a huge, right. uh, 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 you know, uh, flow of information and stories about COVID-19. Um, you know, and, and it's sort of hard to understand, like, what would you say to the family members of the person who's, who's been profiled as someone who's died of COVID? What would you say to them? What would this? What would these these trollers say to those people? You know, it's outrageous that that your 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 loved one has been written about for dying of COVID. I don't know. I, it's so I don't. I haven't detected much political um, bearing of this series. Um, I'm trying to think, but I, I I really can't. I mean, you know, it's the obituary pages, right? It's not. It's not politics, um, so maybe below people's radar. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the themes that you've seen come out now that you have this really landscape view of um, people who've died um, that you've featured in the Those We've Lost series. 
What are some of the things that really stand out as uh, unifying factors and themes that draw them together? Um, well, I guess one thing that really strikes me, which is the one thing that's not in any of these stories, but I see it all the time, which is uh, how family members and friends are so devastated by the way people die um, and um, and how they die alone and how their loved ones are you know, off very often just alone in a hospital bed and they're unable to see them and they're unable to grieve uh, over them because of restrictions. And this is really, I mean, we've written tons of stories about this. Don't get me wrong, it's a big theme, but it doesn't show up in our individual stories. But because I'm looking through and you know, sifting through lots of accounts, I see this every day. And 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 that that is the one thing I think that really kind of that gets cuts breaks through a little bit the outer crust of of uh, you know of, of the wall that you have to have when, in doing this this work. And I, and the thing that's so poignant is when people say, "So and so, my uncle, my my mother, my father died alone." Right now, if you think about that for a second. Yes, that's pretty terrible, but we don't really know what that means because none of us know what it's like to die, right? Because it hasn't happened yet to us if we're sitting here talking about it. So perhaps there are those final moments of anguish and then the person's life ends. But what's really revealing about that statement is it's not so much the person who's dying, it's the anguish that the family members feel knowing that the person died alone. To them somehow, it's really painful and terrible. And that's where the pain comes from. Not the person who's actually died, because that's unknowable to us, but the pain of family members contemplating that idea. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is people saying, you know, people we were unable to meet, we were unable to grieve, we couldn't have a funeral. You know, you if you look through a lot of the, the uh, funeral home postings about, about uh, the deceased, they always say, you know, there's usually a line in there, services will be held, but now they, most of them say, because of the COVID you know, restrictions, we will, there will not be any visitation, there will not be anything. So you see that. Now, the, um, something else that struck me, <clears throat> I, I kind of wrote about it briefly um, back in December, is so many of the people who have died are, you know, sort of later in life, middle-aged or older, or even, even young ones, were on to the next thing had reached some new chapter, had overcome some kind of trauma and, and found some new peace. And, and it's just after that happens, they die. You know, it's like, there's something so poignant about that too. You know, the, the guy who just became a US citizen, um, you know, uh, a, a, young, a young gas station attendant who had just given birth two months before. The, uh, the, the, the children of, uh, a man who was imprisoned, who uh, through an oversight didn't realize he could have been released 10 years earlier. It was, it was only figured out that he could be released, you know, six years ago. So he had so few years of freedom left that he could have had. Um, uh, the, the divorced father of three who found, finally fell in love with a woman that he could rebuild his life with and provide a home for his kids. Mm. Then he dies, you know. So that, that's, that's a theme that's really struck me. It's not, in every one of these obits, but it's I've seen this run through. And then there is the there are the couples who die within hours of each other. There's so many of those. Mm -hmm. We've written a few of those uh, brothers 
who die, twins who die within hours of each other. We've written a few of those. Um, so, and I guess I'm, I'm drawn to a lot of stories about people who overcome uh, difficulties, who overcome obstacles. Those are compelling stories. So maybe, you know, I accidentally pick lots of those, but to me, those are good stories. So there are a lot of those kinds of stories too. There's so much in there, what you're describing. I've been the obituary that's in the Those We've Lost series about Gail Slatter. Um, yeah. Same kind of situation that she was moving to the next act. It yes. Was, Getting creative yes. writing degree, probably you know, working on children's book. Um, it's really interesting that you point out that detail. There's something else in here that you were describing just a minute ago. I knew I was going to get a lot of this conversation, and, and this is really important to think with, that the obituary is not only the story of, of a person who's been lost, but it's also an insight into their into the family, into the broader family structure. Mm-hmm. And the family members are even named, as you say. Um, towards the end of the obituary. Uh, In some cases, we learn a little bit about them, some details about them too. That aligns with some really interesting social science research about COVID-19. There's a Penn State team, you may have seen this report, that's been doing bereavement research Mm -hmm. and talking about what they call a bereavement multiplier, where for every person who dies of COVID, there's nine people who are impacted um, not like, hey, I heard about that and felt bad, but their lives are deeply impacted, either causing emotional stress, physical stress, or economic stress. And so there's a way to read those we've lost, I feel like, and get some insight into that bereavement. It, it, it extends beyond this lone person. And as you say, to say that they died alone is is one thing, but to imagine that a a person felt it was important to tell you that is an insight into what their family is dealing with. That's really important, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that also reflects a, a sort of our own deep-seated fear of death, right? I mean, that's, we all, as we all, especially as we grow older, it becomes a little bit more a, a real thing that our time is coming to an end, right? And so much literature and art and whatever, human endeavor is devoted to either stating that off or wrestling with it or reconciling ourselves to that fact. So, you know, when we see people, you know, when we read about people who are dying and we read about the fact that they died alone, the circumstances of the death, where they were, you know, it's hard not to project a little bit of yourself on that and to, it's hard not to feel a little bit of disquiet about that. Um, This is kind of vaguely related to this, not really, but one of the things I love is, is, is looking at the pictures that we use because we, we all our obits have photographs that go with them. And oftentimes we'll go through the pictures that are available and try to decide which are the best ones to use. And um, I love seeing the pictures of the people when they're really young and then maybe middle age and then when they're older because you it really drives home. Like aging, aging and death are kind of inevitable, you know? And everybody was a vibrant young person at one point. And Hopefully, many of your listeners are vibrant young people, particularly, you know, your students, right? They're all starting out in life. Um, yeah, that's it, tangentially related to them. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, I, it, thank you for sharing that because also it comes back to our earlier discussion about the sort of information flow of the pandemic and the infographics and the dig, data visualizations and everything else. But then you come to the those we've lost and, and the obituary pages. And even if people don't read the full obituary, that photograph there is also going to speak to them. 
and it's a different way of absorbing information. It's a it's a humanization and it's a personalization, which I think has an important role. I wanted to ask you one more thing about the um, kind of the editorial vision of the project, and so much of our um, kind of daily thinking about the pandemic, even the way I report the death statistics, is is drives home stories about nations, and we, and we because of the way public health. Uh, reporting works and the way public health works, it's it's national in, in many cases. But how do you think about that with the Those We've Lost series in terms of where in the world you want to try to cover and where where you want to draw these stories from? Are you, are you focused mostly in North America or are you bringing in stories from around the world? No, um, it's, it's definitely a global project. And it's funny that you say that because uh, today I... This week, I've commissioned a bunch of um, obituaries of people in India who have died because India is now, you know, it's the epicenter or at least it's the, the, the focus of a lot of attention because of the huge numbers of people who are dying and the breakdown of the healthcare system there. So I, I felt it was important to have some representation of Indians. And I, I edited one that hopefully should be, be posted pretty soon. Um, a great Indian uh, musician, a singer of, of, um, of ragas. Um, who is the fifth generation in his family to to be a, be a performer of this of this kind of music or Indian classical music, and he's imparted it to his sons and to his grandchildren too. Um, so yeah, so India, like right now, is a focus of mine. For a time, it was Brazil, right, because Brazil had a huge um, surge in deaths, and particularly um, um, indigenous people in in the Amazon. Uh, they were suffering a lot. So I commissioned some of those. Native Americans uh, were, were, were very hard hit uh, and run reservations around the United States, covered them. Um, Italians, when, when Italy was, the, was really suffering greatly, had a large number of deaths, that became a focus. Um, so, so that's sort of part of the, the very unscientific editorial process of choosing who to do. Part of it is paying attention to the news. Where, the, where is the story moving? Focusing on that place. Um, as I said earlier, um, when it was clear that um, nursing home people were dying in large numbers, making sure we represented that those people. Um, African-Americans. Um, you know, the other thing is it's, you know, we, we make a real effort to be as diverse in general in our coverage um, at the New York Times. And we have a big push on to represent more women because for so many decades, women were not getting obits because, you know, as a reflection of our society, many women weren't allowed to achieve, um, uh, you know, things that would, they were, they were barred from many professions where they would achieve enough uh, to get a, a New York Times obit. So we're, we're, we're changing that. And um, I'm trying to represent as many women as possible too. Uh, however, there's about twice as many men as women die. So, you know, it's, it t- there tend to be a lot of men in our pages also. Is there a tradition of obituary writing in newspapers in other countries the way that there is in the United States? Um, I mean, the British papers have, have a robust obituary tradition. Um, their style is a little different. It's, they, they seem to be more kind of essayistic profiles. Um, um, you know, and most of the most newspapers run um, uh, obituaries of, of very prominent people. Very few newspapers 
have as robust a report as we do because we just we have a lot of resources invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, all around the world, you have death notices, right? And so do we pay death notices. And then, you know, a lot of cultures, there's a tradition of putting posters on walls. I don't know if you've, if you've been to Italy, you've, you've gone through a small town and you'll see, you know, posters with a black cross and the heavy black lettering, you know, taking note of the person's death and, um, and how old they were. Uh, so there are all kinds of ways that death is, is memorialized. Um, American obituary writing is a, its own thing. It's very specific. And New York Times obituary writing has its own kind of culture and tradition. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Dan Waken of the New York Times today about the Those We've Lost series that the New York Times has been running, dealing with the staggering losses from COVID-19. Dan, I wanted to read just a couple of lines again from this story that um, you wrote to kind of introduce the series last spring. You wrote, most obituary writers and editors will agree that standard professional detachment is the first line of defense when death is your beat. Embracing the fascinating histories of the people we write about, using graceful prose to capture them as best we can for the ages, and employing journalistic chops to dig deep and uncover stories also help keep morbidness at bay. It's tougher when the story is all around you. You wrote that a year ago. And I guess I was sort of wondering if you might share a little bit about how you've taken care of, of yourself in, in this. I mean, you're, you're immersed in these in these stories, and how do you keep that morbidness at bay? It, it's been unrelenting. Well, I mean, I, I, it sort of goes back to what what I wrote there, which is that when you're confronted with a story subject, a person who's died of COVID nineteen, um, what what keeps that what keeps you sane is to think, well, what's the story here? How do we report this? Um, you know, it, it, when I'm editing, how do we make this prose better? Uh, what key facts are missing? Have we not uh, played up enough this aspect of the person? Those are all things that journalists do, right? And editors do. So in the process of doing that, you are focusing on your task and that other stuff doesn't come in. Um, and, you know, and then and then sort of away from the computer screen, you're thinking, I'm, you know, I'm asking myself those questions. Have we written enough about X? Should we get more stories from Y? Who are the writers I could go to? Uh, who'd be interested in doing something? Who can I match up with this? You know, so those are the um, those are the sort of the professional processes that you do, and I guess it's pretty much like anybody who has to do something that's you know, that's potentially um, troubling, like, any, like a, a, a doctor, a medical professional, it's they, they channel their, their work thinking into the stuff they're doing every day. And they're not being devastated by the, by a, the potential that a patient may lose their life because they're working on them. Not, not to, to say that journalism is the equivalent of medicine yeah, in any way. Okay. I mean, what doctors do is, is, is life and death. What we do is rarely that. Um, I wonder about the, uh, where the project will go from here, you know, we hear a lot about, I'm already seeing stories that use the phrase post-COVID, which is, uh, I think, an unfortunate term to use at this time, especially when people will be suffering from long-term COVID, COVID symptoms. And, you, and as you said, India and Brazil, places are still having really um, breakdowns of the health, health system. At the same time, of course, with vaccination, 
and declining infection rates in many parts of the United States. Um, hope is in. We have a president who actually talks about, <clears throat> excuse me, a president who talks about getting past this time and unification and, and healing and kinds of things we didn't hear much about last year from the White House. Um, where does the project go from here and, and how do you see it fitting in as maybe the national mood moves to, it moves, changes, people start thinking about getting past this time? That's a really excellent question. Um, and one that I haven't come up with an answer yet, nor has have my colleagues. I mean, we, um, I think the, the thinking is we're not going to set a date now when we're going to cut this off. That, there's, no, there's no reason to do that. What we might do is slow down the pace a bit. Um, if it seems like the attention of our editors and of our readers and the world are sort of moving away, we can still keep this project going and still write the compelling you know, obituary of someone who's died of COVID on a less frequent, um, uh, you know, at less frequency. Um, now, what happens after we do that? What's the next step after that? I'm sort of thinking out loud here. Um, like, let's say we go down to, I'm trying to do one a day, and let's say we do go down to two a week. Uh, do we feature those in some special way? Um, and then is there a certain point where we write a story or send a note to a reader saying, you know, we are suspending this project just to let people know? Um, that's the tricky thing. Like, when do we send that out? And it's very hard to see that. Um, it, I guess it's just going to be a question of when does the moment feel right? And I can't yet predict what that's going to be. I ask this also as a disaster researcher who um, I, I get very anxious when people talk about disasters ending because that has cultural importance, um, but also has, um, you know, so real um, broader kind of social Im importance, even the way that we think about how we manage disasters. And so I think, again, back to portraits of grief. Um, when you read that book, you come to the end of that book. And yet at the same time, since 9-11, there have been many deaths and more every year, which have been connected with people who have long-term lung distress, for example, or mental health issues, drug and alcohol addiction, things that are attributed to September 11, which then lead to death. And I've thought about that a lot. You know, I kind of wish Portraits of Grief hadn't, hadn't stopped you know, it would have been hard to keep it on and maybe the justification inside the paper to say, hey, let's leave this open. You couldn't have made that case in 2001. But part of me hopes that those we've lost won't stop as a feature because I worry about stopping it, that that has an impact in our broader discussion about what are often quite arbitrary timeframes that we imply when we talk about disaster. And that's interesting because the other side of that is the word closure, right? We need closure. We need to, to make ourselves feel better by saying something is over. We need to say, all right, I'm going to stop grieving for, you know, my Uncle Joe because I got to close. We have to move on with our lives. And, um, and I guess it's a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a real tension for you in your field, that tension between um, being, a res being responsible and thinking about the effects of a disaster and also feeling the need that people have to call it, call it quits and say, look, let's just end it and move on. Um, so, but I mean, if, I guess you've probably thought a lot about this historically, right? 
like the you know the the, the 1918 flu epidemic, sure. um, and or even AIDS, the AIDS crisis, a more recent thing, right? If you if you lived amid the AIDS crisis, it was so real, so palpable, so horrifying, so many deaths, so much grief all around you, and then it kind of seemed to end, right? Even though people are still living with AIDS today, and 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 now. Uh, you know, and, then, and then a few years after plays were written, Angels in America, um, pieces of music were written about it, uh, novels were written, and there's kind of um, an art, a, a cultural wrestling with the memory takes place. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that seems a little dated, right? I mean, Angels in America is a great play, but now it's sort of seen as a piece of its period, I think. Sure. So... It uh, and so, you know, and then at what point does it become so remote you don't even think about it? Like, no one really thought about the Spanish flu of 1918 until until it was revived by COVID, right? No, there were a few books and people hadn't grappled with it for a long time. And and you're right. And I think it's interesting, too, you talk about the, the that this is how I see your project, um, is it is part of also that that material that's going to help create the first wave of art, which will help people make sense of what this has all been about. So it is, and I really appreciate you sort of reflecting on this idea about the role of those we've lost as something that's documenting a moment, keeping it open and telling it as a global story and asking people to wrestle with it, but also being aware that there's a, a, a social function of closure too. So that's, those are decisions that are, um, they're not arbitrary, but there's no rule book on to how we decide when a disaster is over or you know, it's what you were describing, you and your team will be talking about how we how we think about the pace of these as the number of deaths draws down. Um, I think I'll have to have you back in six months to talk more about about that, because um, sure. there's but no I mean, easy answer to that question. I don't I don't think it's also it's also a sort of a function of, of, of the profession of journalism. Right. It's just it's just the way it is. Newspapers move on. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know. Hurricane Irene wrought terrible devastation, but we, we don't, we're not covering the after effects now closely. If there's a report about environmental damage, you might do it. Or um, Katrina, right? I mean, Katrina was, we're not, we still don't have a huge staff in New Orleans covering the after effects of Katrina. Um, uh, so at some point, the, the journalistic powers that be are going to say, well, We've invested a lot of resources uh, and time and effort and money um, into those we've lost. Um, it's now time to take those resources and devote them to something else, right? Because journalism moves on. Um, and but that's where that's where artists and you know and and thinkers like yourself come into play, where you know you'll be writing a book about COVID-19 and you know in five years and It'll get reviewed in the New York Times, and it'll be, you know, the subject of discussion in academic journals and 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 um, and future podcasts. Right? That's that's. I think that's how the cycle works. It's interesting to think about that that connectivity. And I, you know, we're almost up on time, but I did want to ask you, since you mentioned journalism, um, I talked with a lot of reporters in the last year about just how they've done their work in this time you know, how they cultivate sources, how they get to the scene of something they can't get to the scene to because of public health restrictions. I wonder if you wouldn't share a little bit of your thinking as a, um, a journalist with a lot of experience, how you think journalism may have changed 
through this pandemic time, either the craft of it or the business of it, what you might see as a sort of a, a mark of COVID on your profession as we come out of this time? Well, I can tell you something very concrete and specific and narrow, which has had, which has had a huge impact. And it's on how the New York Times does journalism. Because when COVID first started, when it first became this global story that was of immense importance, um, the Times started doing something called the live briefing, which is on our website, um, a sort of a module on the homepage that has a series of, of you know, quick headlines and then a series of short stories. So you could quickly go there and find out what's going on. And the live briefing then continued day after day. I think it's still going on, you know, every day for COVID for, you know, 400 days or something. Um, and that, that was then applied to politics and to breaking stories, that kind of format. It's really more of a format. And it's, but it's become um, a structural thing at the times too. People are, are, are now have jobs devoted to live, live briefings. And there's a whole department devoted to it. And in, and in, in May, um, I'm, I'm going to be sort of on call to work on a completely something completely different from my current job, but just to help out doing the live briefings. So I think that's a, a real result of, of the COVID crisis, the way Times presents and does its journalism on its website. Hmm. Um, it's a little bit, uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit um, kind of inside baseball. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering if other newspapers too are now sort of seeing these big global stories as opportunities to, and not newspapers, news organizations to really um, uh, rethink how they present the news hmm. um, to, 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 uh, to readers and viewers. Um, I think it's had a big impact on how journalism does graphics and interactive news. I mean, as you were saying before, the, the data heavy quality of it and all the, 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 the immense variables of data create a real need for clear, compelling, interactive journalism. Hmm. Um, and so I think there've been big strides made in that area. Um, um, and I think I'm, I would hope that news organizations see the need for really experienced global health reporters um, and the, the need to have people who are expert covering this stuff because it's, you know, there'll probably be other surges and other viruses down the road, I would think. I'm not an expert, you know, in that, but we need to be ready for that. Um, so and what hopefully. About, and what about the newsroom itself? People have, uh, you know, a cinematic idea of what a newsroom looks like. It doesn't always comport with reality, but still, there is that excitement of being in the space with people who want to get the story, who care about the facts, who are editing and editing and, and re-editing, being together in a close physical space so you can yell to each other across the room. Right. Doesn't are exist. We going back, are you going back to that? Well, we are. The, the, the Times has made it clear that they very much want to have as many people back together, physically together as possible. Um, I don't know if this is internal. I'm sure it's, it's probably out there already, but you know, various internal memos say that that we're expected to be in the office the majority of the week, which I think is interpreted as three days, uh, most people. Um, and some people will be required to be there for five days, depending on their job, and other people um, can should be allowed, will be allowed to work from home. And there are a lot of correspondents all around the world who work out of their houses already. I mean, there's, a, there's an office in the road tour, it doesn't really matter. Um, but um, <clears throat> so, so I, I think, the newsroom will be reconstructed, 
but it's going to be much more flexible, much more fluid. Um, and I think it's, I think most people recognize it's really important to be together. The exchange of ideas, the sort of um, the, 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 the informal teaching and mentoring that goes on between, you know, old timers like myself and young people who are coming in who don't know the times that well, uh, who don't feel comfortable. It's just a lot easier for them if they're around people, you know, the newcomers. Um, and, and, you know, and also just uh, the, the sort of the, the daily exchanges that you have um, just make it just create such fertile ground for story ideas and, and, and what goes into a story and how you approach your job. Um, and, you know, I, I, when we were in the office, I, I would go to lunch, you know, three or four times a week in the cafeteria where this, my friend, the global health reporter was and sit at a table with the same revolving group of, you know, four to 12 people. And we would, we would sit, we would talk about the stories we were working on and, um, you know, and give each other advice and joke and, you know, tease each other. That was a, a glorious part of the job. And I miss that, but um, just a reminder. Yeah, I hope you can get back to that as, as soon as possible. Uh, I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and most Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time. Uh, please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time when I talk with Lori Peak, the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado, and Amanda Ripley, investigative reporter Amanda Ripley, will be talking about the life and work of disaster researcher Dennis Maletti, who was actually featured in the Those We've Lost series. So please do join me for that. And let me thank Dan Wake. And uh, Dan, just really great to be with you and, and have this conversation. And Those We've Lost means a lot to me, means a lot, I think, to a lot of people. And um, keep up the great work. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate that. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 530.